Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. As we find our strides now in the middle of the holiday season, happy holidays, but those issues that plague us are still very much alive. Things like nonprofits, education, global trade. What about the economy? What about workforce and development? We will unpack those issues and more. We hope you stay with us as we start right after this. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Nicole Miles of the Children's Museum of the Low Country, Kelly Andrews from the Pitt County Development Commission, and special guest, Dr. Rosalind Clark Artis, president of Benedict College. Happy holidays. Welcome again to this dialogue. Uh, Nicole, welcome back. Kelly, nice to see you both. And um, uh, Nicole, let me start with you. You know, one of the, one of the biggest issues during this, this public health care crisis has been about education. As this uncertainty and as the questions about what education is in the short term and the intermediate term, how much does that upend you and the low country and what you're doing? Well, thanks for having me, Chris. And I, I think that's a great question. Uh, education is so fundamental to you know how we're going to get through this pandemic in the short term and in the long term. And we we kind of have to look at this in a bifurcated way, where we have to deal with the immediate crisis that's at hand. Um, you know, in my business as a museum, we'd close down to the public. We brought school children in to facilitate their learning to kind of fill that stopgap for working parents who'd had to go back and had children in virtual school. So we're working in that immediate time frame, but we're also future casting to what does this look like for education beyond the pandemic? Is this an opportunity to revisit how we learn and how we feed our social emotional well-being, our academic well-being, and how are we going to close these gaps with children? And so those are now the conversations we're having about a future in education and informal education in particular. You know, Kelly, as an economic developer, education, obviously community colleges, higher ed, even K through 12, these are important elements, and I'm not telling you anything around economic development, but as an economic developer in Pitt County, in Eastern North Carolina, is this, this real challenge and this liability around the education model as it resets, is this, do you see this as a, a hand-wringing time, a, an opportunity? How, how do you unpack this? How do you look at it? It's, it's a little of both. Um, you've got, you know, people in certain uh, 
industries, accommodations and retail. Um, you've got one in two people in accommodations, particularly out of work. Uh, where do they go to work? And there are jobs in manufacturing. So how do we upskill them, reskill them for those jobs? So our community colleges have stepped up. Um, Pitt Community Colleges uh, is, is reskilling them for jobs in manufacturing, but our manufacturing jobs are more high skill these days. There's more automation. So there are uh, skills that they need to learn. And Pitt Community Colleges stepped up with more uh, Lean Six Sigma and more advanced uh, automation skills that they can learn to go into that. And then of course, uh, our manufacturing jobs are going to be different going forward. There's gonna be more safety and health concerns and there's gonna be more emerging industries and new jobs that we haven't had before. So we do need to prepare for the future. And those are things that we are learning as we go. Nicole, you know, the idea that we now have a, there's some certainty in political leadership in the country and certainly in both states and in your local communities, does that, does that take some of the heat and some of the uncertainty out of uh, jobs is, you know, Kelly just talked about jobs, but when, when we, there's this gap between folks looking for a job and the jobs available and that gap's never been wider, in, interestingly enough. So how, how does that square against all of this public policy? You know, I think we're all relieved to have a, a, a definitive political direction at this point, Chris, but that gap still does remain. And I think there are a couple of big questions at play. How fast can we close the gap between workers available and jobs that exist? And how can we provide supports for employers to make sure they can hire people in, whether to Kelly's point, we need to get folks reskilled, whether we need to get them uh, on a job search. You know, I have folks I've unfortunately had to lay off myself who haven't been in the job market for 12 years. Um, yeah, how, how do we kind of, fill this stopgap time as we do maybe have some paths laying out in front of us, it's getting to these next two and three months that I think is really where the, the critical issue is. So Kelly, to, to, to not just like, like we're doing right now, to stop talking about it, but actually start closing the gap to connect those folks that are willing to work, maybe not quite as skilled, but still willing to work, how do you close the gap? I mean, how do you seriously close that gap tactically? Well, again, um, we have, again, programs through our community college that are uh, providing training um, from the very basic levels, doing career readiness certificates to determine the aptitudes of the people and determining the gaps that they do have, um, and then providing those skill-up trainings that will provide uh, the, the skills that they need to get the jobs that are available in our manufacturing um, and, and other industries and also to uh, provide for emerging industries that are going to come out uh, from this epidemic. Are people, let me stop right there. I'm sorry, Kelly. Are people signing up for these jobs? Do you see them doing, in some cases, the hard work to get, to the, to get from A to B? Absolutely. We, we just had a job fair um, this past Saturday. On a Saturday um, for a new industry here, World Cat Boats um, is opening up a plant in an old uh, industri industrial building. Um, they have 60 job openings and they have people lined up out the door before the, the 10 o'clock uh, you know, time frame um, looking for uh, to, to submit their applications. So uh, they, there are job openings and there are 
people willing to, uh, to, to do what they need to do to get those jobs. And I'm sure those people have never worked in a, in a boating manufacturing uh, environment before, but they're willing to put in the work. Uh, as much as over the last several years about this gap between urban and rural, and you could apply it to almost anything, and certainly during this, this last political season, it became an issue when it came down to voting and voting blocks and, and polling that is questionable about its accuracy with its current technology. But this, Cal, or, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Nicole, with this whole idea that urban-rural now has a clear divide, is it? How do, you, how do you see urban-rural? South Carolina has some of the most rural counties in the country, and so does North Carolina. Does that gap get wider? Or again, is this an opportunity for us? I, you know, I tend to look at these things optimistically, Chris. I do think this is an opportunity, but we have to step back and look at what just happened. When we look at what's going on politically, when we look at what's happening in education, we cannot lay a single solution or a single message over our states, over South Carolina, over North Carolina, where we do have these intensely urban areas and they're juxtaposed by these intensely rural areas. The needs are not the same, the challenges are not the same, so the messages and the solutions can also not be the same. And I think what we saw happen politically and what we're seeing in the education realm and the economic realm is a real reaction to that, that you know, what fits Charleston is, is not what fits Jasper County, right? That those are not the same types of settings. And I think that the opportunity for us is to really examine what is the message, what is the service, and who's listening to those messages? Mm -hmm. Who's actually responding? How do we do it? Uh, so I think it's time for us to really listen critically to both of these settings and then do some tailoring uh, to, to make improvements for both groups. Kelly, you've got the same situation in Greenville, Pitt County, where you've got a, a, a vibrant urban core, ECU, et cetera, et cetera. And then just a few miles outside of that city, you've got some very poor counties. Well, and, and absolutely. And, and we actually have a high poverty rate in Pitt County. Um, so we, we certainly consider ourselves a rural county. Um, we do know that in economic development, there are there is a trend for projects to look at a more rural uh, community. Um, so there is, like to Nicole's point, an opportunity there. Um, they are looking at areas that are lower cost. Um, so uh, obviously the rural communities can provide that and lower wage communities because there's a lower cost of living. So there's an opportunity there. But they also are still looking for the same amenities and attributes of an urban community. So we have to be, have a realistic look at what our gaps are um, and our poverty levels, our diversity and inclusion, our, our social issues, um, our, um, again, our amenities and quality of life and take a realistic look at that and some asset mapping and figure out some ways that we can uh, bring ourselves up to a standard that will attract those companies. Education has most certainly been one of those issues well worth watching for many reasons. Joining us now from Columbia is the president of Benedict, Benedict College, Dr. Rosalind Clark Artis. Dr. Artis, welcome to the program, and, and welcome to the Carolinas. A little belated, but welcome. Thank you. Very happy to be here. 
Uh, Dr. Artis, I'm, I'm going to read this because I want to get this right. And I, I found this a compelling way to get to a question. And higher education has weathered many things. Civil War, World War I, the 1918 flu pandemic, the Great Depression, World War II, the Great Recession, many ups and downs. And here it is, and this I don't think this is overplaying it to say this public health care crisis that we're in now may be one of the swiftest corrections in many things and maybe the biggest challenge that higher ed has faced. Do you agree with that, Dr. Artis? And how do you respond to that as an educator? So I absolutely agree with that. I think that crisis um, often breeds innovation and it creates new challenges, uh, particularly for the most vulnerable of institutions. The instances that you cited previously, the Great Depression and, and um, the last epidemic that the United States experienced um, were all, uh, all occurred during a time where education was a more elitist environment. Mm -hmm. It was limited to a particular population of students. Now we find ourselves on the cusp of the 21st century where education has been uh, expanded and broadened and is accessible and available to all. And so when you have a pandemic superimposed on an incredibly diverse higher education system, it creates uh, a little more nuance, a little more challenge. Mm -hmm. um, but I think on the whole, higher education has responded really very effectively in the wake of the pandemic. Do you, do you find that you, and I promise Nicole Kelly, we're going to open this up in just a second. Dr. Artis, do you find that you've had to be a cheerleader for the student body? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, our students are a uniquely vulnerable student population. Uh, I am an advocate for my mm -hmm. students in many respects. Uh, and the pandemic has really uh, revealed or exposed, if you will, some of the uh, deficiencies in the system mm -hmm. and some of the inequalities in the system. And it's my responsibility to ensure that my students are cared for in the wake of the pandemic. Nicole? So I think that's so well said that these system exposures have been made, laid plainly in front of us in, in front of, in the face of the pandemic. And I do think that's an exciting opportunity at this point to start looking for where are our new connections? Where are there new systems uh, in the face of, of what can be defined as system failure? I think you have to look at, you know, what can be built from this. And I'm, Is, I'm optimistic. And, and Nicole, there, a question, please, if you'll ask Dr. Mm -hmm. Artis a question. Um, so I'm curious, Dr. Artis, as you are really working through these system failures, how are you addressing both the immediate needs of your students and then what the long-term vision will be for Benedict? That is such a great question. So we are uh, running two playbooks. One is a short game and one is a long game, right? We're going for that, uh, that big pass in the end zone and we're also trying to pick up yardage uh, in a very short game kind of way. We're rushing for yards. Uh, our students at Benedict College are, as I've indicated previously, somewhat um, different than perhaps students at other institutions. Uh, we are 84% Pell eligible. Uh, that means our students are incredibly low wealth. Uh, we are also more than 50% first generation. And so our students do not have role models and exemplars many times in their families and communities. And so when you have a challenge like COVID-19, it hits these kids particularly hard. Uh, Benedict really galvanized quickly back in the spring. Um, most colleges and universities closed and evacuated their campuses. Benedict was no different. The difference for Benedict is that recognizing our kids are low wealth first generation kids, we paid for their travel home. We booked 124 plane tickets. We ran 24-hour shuttle service to three states. Um, we ensured that our students got home safely. So short-term, we often have to think of the immediate needs of our students. And as we think long-term, institutions that will survive and thrive this pandemic 
beyond this pandemic are those that really think outside the box and are not afraid to try a new way of doing things. And so we're trying to be as innovative and strategic as possible planning for tomorrow at Benedict College. Kelly, question? Sure, yes. Um, Dr. Artis, in this most untraditional of years in many ways, how are your students uh, certainly the ones that are preparing to graduate and for careers, um, linking with career opportunities when they uh, are not able to do that in the uh, traditional ways of, of knocking on doors and, and meeting and networking with companies. Also, very well-developed career resource center at Benedict College and are fortunate to have employers throughout the region who have really partnered with us in very meaningful ways. A uh, great example, Boeing, uh, is conducting um, seminars, workshops, and internship uh, interviewing with us digitally. And they, we had a session last night, as a matter of fact, with about 10 of our students. And so we're seeing the employers really step up and partner with us in a way that creates a symbiotic, mutually beneficial arrangement where they have the benefit of um, recruiting uh, from diverse talent pools, and we have the opportunity to put our best foot forward and give our students great opportunities. Yeah, Dr. Artis, I can't help think of the technical colleges in South Carolina, the community colleges in North Carolina. When you, when you talk about Boeing and when you talk about partnering, it seems more in their ilk than it would be in a college ilk. Well, you know, I think there's a couple things that are really important to remember here, and that is um, the future of work. So when you look at McKenzie and Associates and the work that they've done in projecting into the future what the employer's needs will be, higher order thinking skills are critically important. And so while there's always going to be a place for vocational training, technical training, those kinds of things, uh, it has been worth it for our employers to engage four-year institutions like a Benedict College because we're producing individuals who will be able to think critically and problem solve and create new knowledge for um, their enterprise. Uh, Nicole, question? Well, I think that's a, a really <laughs> made a great point about you know 21st century learning skills and, and what the what the new order of work, what sort of the fourth industrial revolution that they keep saying that's upon us. You know, my realm is sort of the early childhood version of that. How do we start that thought process of keeping kids' minds plastic and thinking? Um, cooperatively, but what we know and why institutions like mine are involved in this kind of work is because by the time children are getting older, we're discovering into adulthood, they don't really have that plastic mindset. And so I'm wondering how that's working for you at Benedict. You now kind of the world has fallen away and students knew it. They were already, uh, many of them at risk. How are you fostering those kinds of 21st century learning skills to um, help these young adults take on the, the fourth industrial revolution? So I think we're doing problem-based learning. We have an innovation hub where our students are effectively going out into the workforce now virtually, uh, and solving problems. They're acting as consultants, if you will. The goal is to get these first-generation students exposure in the workforce and in the professional environment so that they're well-suited uh, to adapt to those environments. You raise a really critical point in terms of the elasticity uh, or the plastic, uh, good terminology, um, mind and the thinking for K-12 students. One of our greatest challenges at Benedict College is that when students arrive on campus, they have often been the beneficiaries of uh, a school system, a K-12 school system that has not harvested uh, their unique talents, that has not prepared them well. Um, in numeracy, literacy, uh, good communication skills, and certainly technology skills. 
COVID-19 really laid that bare. 12% of students in South Carolina do not have access to broadband connectivity in their home environments. I know North Carolina, of course, has uh, a comprehensive statewide plan, and South Carolina is running to catch up with that right now. Mm -hmm. Kelly? Yeah, as you know, being in economic development, um, you know, quality of life and, and is, a, is a big part of how we promote um, and uh, encourage investment and, and certainly, um, you know, look at uh, as a whole how we promote our area. And um, I think diversity inclusion is, is certainly a big part of that. Um, is there a question for uh, Dr. Artis? Yeah, the question is um, how, you know, there's easy ways to quantify demographics, but how, what are, what are is any suggestions for how we can um, illustrate um, our diversity and encourage it in our, in our own companies and in our community? So I think uh, there's a um, burgeoning interest in diversity and inclusion, and mm -hmm. I would suggest an emphasis on inclusion. Uh, diversity suggests uh, a numeric calculation. I can mm -hmm. And I can hire minorities, I can hire whatever demographic it is that we want to sort of flesh out in our organizations. Can we keep them? Will they be successful? Are they welcomed? Are they engaged? Will they be given stretch assignments and opportunities to advance in the company? I think that's what creates the stickiness. That's what creates uh, the willingness right. to stay in the region. And we need to, I mean, throughout the Carolinas, this notion of brain drain is still a very significant issue for our companies. Um, what attracts companies to the region is a well-trained workforce. And so if you want to attract individuals to these companies, that part's easy retaining them, fully engaging them has to do with a top-down, if you will, um, belief in the capacity of everyone to make a significant contribution. And so I think we have to be very thoughtful and very intentional about engaging all different kinds of people within the uh, fabric of the organization so that everyone feels welcome and included. Mm -hmm. uh, President Artis, I want to come back to the, the land, and this is my term, ma'am, but the landmark and the legacy that Benedict College is a longtime HBCU. Uh, uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, HBCU is in her, her, her educational pedigree. And not, not just Kamala Harris, but others now of new leaders and rising leaders firmly embrace the HBCU as part of their educational process. Is this, and I want to be careful about overplaying it, but I'm trying to unpack the idea of what, is this a renaissance for HBCUs when they themselves were questioning the relevance and the viability when it comes to budgets and school and enrollment? How do HBCUs now plug into where we're headed? So I think the uh, advancement to Kamala Harris to the second highest office in the land mm -hmm. uh, and having an HBCU on her Vita really speaks volumes about the quality of the HBCU experience. The reality is we have seen historically that um, you know, presidents and vice presidents typically are uh, products of the Ivy League. And this assumption and assessment that these institutions are somehow better, stronger, faster, and produce world leaders. I think the idea that historically black colleges and universities also produce world leaders, particularly in a world that's becoming increasingly more diverse. So it really positions HBCUs um, at the center of the conversation around quality and productivity and the ability of our students and graduates to lead into the 21st century. Does it, is it fair to characterize that that, that, that that same clarity would have to be made to even those people of color or African-Americans that would normally consider an HBCU but went elsewhere because of the same reason you just described? 
Absolutely. I think that there has been, uh, it's a pendulum, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, HBCUs were founded at a time when African Americans had no other opportunities. And so by necessity had to uh, become educated on these campuses. When the world uh, appeared to open up and there were more choices available, people immediately flocked to those other choices thinking they are better. Mm -hmm. um, and I think better is relative. Uh, I think uh, what we're seeing now is a renaissance where people are once again looking at historically black colleges and recognizing that the middle class in this country, the black middle class was built at HBCUs. Um, the vast majority of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus are graduates of HBCUs. And so there is a generational gap there between students who chose predominantly white institutions, presuming them to be of better quality. Um, and the truth is, they're better funded, they have better resources, but whether the quality of the experience is commensurate with that which they could obtain on HBCU campus is still a very much open question. We have less than a minute left, so Nicole Kelly, I, I hate to take it away from you, but I'm gonna have to wrap it up pretty quickly. Uh, Dr. Artis, let me, let me ask you a final question in this last minute. The idea of enrollment and tuition, and specifically tuition. So two years ago, Benedict College dropped tuition by 26%. That was a fairly meaningful drop, and now you find yourself in the middle of a pandemic. So how do you square lower tuition costs maybe same or maybe increased expenses in trying to meet the need of, of being a solvent, but a good university as well as in college. So the reality is the tuition reset was born of the idea that our students couldn't pay it anyway. High performing, academically strong students were taking a look at our sticker price and saying, I could never afford that and choosing mm -hmm. to forego education perhaps all entirely. Um, and so things like net tuition price and tuition discounting are not common vernacular for low wealth first generation students. And so by reducing that price and actually collecting it, the reality is Benedict had a pretty large accounts receivable. Our students could not pay what we were charging. So it made little sense to continue to uh, charge what I believe to be slightly excessive uh, amounts of money for students whose credit would be effective lo affected long-term and whose debt load would be significant long-term. And so, um, we have adapted, thank goodness, that we made that shift two years ago, so we had some time to um, right. you know, adjust our expenditures yeah. accordingly. Okay, and I hate to cut you off, which means please come back, and, just, and, and we'll let you finish that thought, but President Artis, thank you. Best of luck going forward. Kelly, thank you. Nicole, good to see you both. Everyone stay safe until next week. I'm Chris Wooding. Have a great day. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Thank you. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University. Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Barings, Grant Thornton, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.